Book the Third. Chapter Eleven. Dusk. The wretched wife of the innocent man thus doomed to die fell under the sentence as if she had been mortally stricken. But she uttered no sound, and so strong was the voice within her representing that it was she of all the world who must uphold him in his misery and not augment it, that it quickly raised her even from that shock. The judges, having to take part in a public demonstration out of doors, the tribunal adjourned. The quick noise and movement of the court's emptying itself by many passages had not ceased when Lucy stood stretching out her arms towards her husband with nothing in her face but love and consolation. If I might touch him, if I might embrace him once, oh, good citizens— if you would have so much compassion for us. There was but a jailer left, along with two of the four men who had taken him last night, and Barsad. The people had all poured out to the show in the streets. Barsad proposed to the rest. Let her embrace him then. It is but a moment. It was silently acquiesced in, and they passed her over the seats in the hall to a raised place where he— by leaning over the dock, could fold her in his arms. Farewell, dear darling of my soul. My parting blessing on my love, we shall meet again, where the weary are at rest. They were her husband's words, as he held her to his bosom. I can bear it, dear Charles. I am supported from above. Don't suffer for me. A parting blessing for our child. I send it to her by you. I kiss her by you. I say farewell to her by you. My husband, no, a moment. He was tearing himself apart from her. We shall not be separated long. I feel that this will break my heart by and by, but I will do my duty while I can, and when I leave her, God will raise up friends for her as he did for me. Her father had followed her and would have fallen on his knees to both of them, but that Darnay put out a hand and seized him, crying, No, no, what have you done, what have you done that you should kneel to us? We know now what a struggle you made of old. We know now what you underwent when you suspected my descent and when you knew it. We know now the natural antipathy you strove against and conquered for her dear sake. We thank you with all our hearts and all our love and duty. Heaven be with you. Her father's only answer was to draw his hands through his white hair and wring them with a shriek of anguish. It could not be otherwise, said the prisoner. All things have worked together as they have fallen out. It was the always vain endeavor to discharge my poor mother's trust that first brought my fatal presence near you. Good could never come of such evil. A happier end was not in nature to so unhappy a beginning. Be comforted and forgive me. Heaven bless you. As he was drawn away, his wife released him and stood looking after him with her hands touching one another in the attitude of prayer and with a radiant look upon her face in which there was even a comforting smile. As he went out at the prisoner's door, she turned, 
laid her head lovingly on her father's breast, tried to speak to him, and fell at his feet. Then, issuing from the obscure corner from which he had never moved, Sidney Carton came and took her up. Only her father and Mr. Lorry were with her. His arm trembled as it raised her and supported her head, yet there was an air about him that was not all of pity, that had a flush of pride in it. Shall I take her to a coach? I shall never feel her weight. He carried her lightly to the door and laid her tenderly down in a coach. Her father and their old friend got into it, and he took his seat beside the driver. When they arrived at the gateway where he had paused in the dark not many hours before to picture to himself on which of the rough stones of the street her feet had trodden, he lifted her again and carried her up the staircase to their rooms. There he laid her down on a couch where her child and Miss Pross wept over her. Don't recall her to herself, he said softly to the latter. She is better so. Don't revive her to consciousness while she only faints. Oh, Carton, Carton, dear Carton, cried little Lucy, springing up and throwing her arms passionately round him in a burst of grief. Now that you have come, I think you will do something to help Mama, something to save Papa. Oh, look at her, dear Carton. Can you, of all the people who love her, bear to see her so? He bent over the child and laid her blooming cheek against his face. He put her gently from him and looked at her unconscious mother. Before I go, he said and paused, I may kiss her? It was remembered afterward that when he bent down and touched her face with his lips, he murmured some words. The child, who was nearest to him, told them afterwards and told her grandchildren when she was a handsome old lady that she heard him say, A life you love. When he had gone out into the next room, he turned suddenly on Mr. Lorry and her father who were following and said to the latter, You had great influence but yesterday, Dr. Manette. Let it at least be tried. These judges and all the men in power are very friendly to you and very recognizant of your services, are they not? Nothing connected with Charles was concealed from me. I had the strongest assurances that I should save him, and I did. He returned the answer in great trouble and very slowly. Try them again. The hours between this and tomorrow afternoon are few and short. But try. I intend to try. I will not rest a moment. That's well. I have known such energy as yours do great things before now. Though never, he added with a smile and a sigh together, such great things as this. But try. Of little worth as life is when we misuse it. It is worth that effort. It would cost nothing to lay down if it were not. I will go said Dr. Manette, to the prosecutor and the president straight, and I will go to others whom it is better not to name. I will write, too, and—but stay. There is a celebration in the streets, and no one will be accessible until dark. That's true. Well, 
It is a forlorn hope at the best, and not much the forlorner for being delayed till dark. I should like to know how you speed, though. Mind, I expect nothing. When are you likely to have seen these dread powers, Dr. Manette? Immediately after dark, I should hope, within an hour or two from this. It will be dark soon after four. Let us stretch the hour or two. If I go to Mr. Lorry's at nine, shall I hear what you have done, either from our friend or from yourself? Yes. May you prosper. Mr. Lorry followed Sidney to the outer door and, touching him on the shoulder as he was going away, caused him to turn. I have no hope, said Mr. Lorry in a low and sorrowful whisper. Nor have I. If any one of these men, or all of these men, were disposed to spare him, which is a large supposition, for what is his life, or any man's to them, I doubt if they durst spare him after the demonstration in the court. And so do I. I heard the fall of the axe in that sound. Mr. Lorry leaned his arm upon the doorpost and bowed his face upon it. Don't despond, said Carton very gently. Don't grieve. I encouraged Dr. Manette in this idea because I felt that it might one day be consolatory to her. Otherwise she might think his life was wantonly thrown away or wasted, and that might trouble her. Yes, 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 returned Mr. Lorry, drying his eyes. You are right, but he will perish. There is no real hope. Yes, he will perish. There is no real hope, echoed Carton and walked with a settled step downstairs. Book the Third Chapter Twelve Darkness Sidney Carton paused in the street, not quite decided where to go. At Telson's banking house at nine, he said with a musing face, Shall I do well in the meantime to show myself? I think so. It is best that these people should know there is such a man as I hear. It is a sound precaution and may be a necessary preparation. But care, 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 let me think it out. Checking his steps, which had begun to tend towards an object, he took a turn or two in the already darkening street and traced the thought in his mind to its possible consequences. His first impression was confirmed. It is best, he said, finally resolved, that these people should know there is such a man as I here. And he turned his face towards Saint Antoine. Defarge had described himself that day as the keeper of a wine shop in the Saint Antoine suburb. It was not difficult for one who knew the city well to find his house without asking any question. Having ascertained its situation, Carton came out of those closer streets again and dined at a place of refreshment and fell sound asleep after dinner. For the first time in many years he had no strong drink. Since last night he had taken nothing but a little light thin wine, and last night he had dropped the brandy slowly down on Mr. Lorry's hearth like a man who had done with it. It was as late as seven o'clock when he awoke refreshed and went out into the streets again. As he passed along towards Saint Antoine, he stopped at a shop window where there was a mirror, 
and slightly altered the disordered arrangement of his loose cravat and his coat collar and his wild hair. This done, he went on direct to Defarge's and went in. There happened to be no customer in the shop but Jacques Three of the restless fingers and the croaking voice. This man, whom he had seen upon the jury, stood drinking at the little counter in conversation with the Defarges, man and wife. The vengeance assisted in the conversation like a regular member of the establishment. As Carton walked in, took his seat, and asked, in very indifferent French, for a small measure of wine, Madame Defarge cast a careless glance at him, and then a keener, and then a keener, and then advanced to him herself and asked him what it was he had ordered. He repeated what he had already said. English? asked Madame Defarge, inquisitively raising her dark eyebrows. After looking at her, as if the sound of even a single French word were slow to express itself to him, he answered in his former strong foreign accent, Yes, madame, yes, I am English. Madame Defarge returned to her counter to get the wine, and, as he took up a Jacobin journal and feigned to pour over it, puzzling out its meaning, he heard her say, I swear to you, like Avramond. Defarge brought him the wine and gave him good evening. How? Good evening. Oh, good evening, citizen, filling his glass. Ah, and good wine. I drink to the Republic. Defarge went back to the counter and said, Certainly, a little like. Madame sternly retorted, I tell you, a good deal like. Jacques Three pacifically remarked, he is so much in your mind, see you, madame. The amiable vengeance added with a laugh, Yes, my faith, and you are looking forward with so much pleasure to seeing him once more tomorrow. Carton followed the lines and words of his paper with a slow forefinger and with a studious and absorbed face. They were all leaning their arms on the counter close together, speaking low. After a silence of a few moments, during which they all looked towards him without disturbing his outward attention from the Jacobin editor, they resumed their conversation. It is true what Madame says, observed Jacques Three. Why stop? There is great force in that. Why stop? Well, well, reasoned Defarge, but one must stop somewhere. After all, the question is still, where? At extermination, said Madame. Magnificent, croaked Jacques Three. The vengeance also highly approved. Extermination is good doctrine, my wife, said Defarge, rather troubled. In general, I say nothing against it. But this doctor has suffered much. You have seen him today. You have observed his face when the paper was read. I have observed his face, repeated Madame contemptuously and angrily. Yes, I have observed his face. I have observed his face to be not the face of a true friend of the Republic. Let him take care of his face. And you have observed, my wife, said Defarge in a deprecatory manner, the anguish of his daughter, 
which must be a dreadful anguish to him. I have observed his daughter, repeated madame. Yes, I have observed his daughter more times than one. I have observed her today, and I have observed her other days. I have observed her in the court, and I have observed her in the street by the prison. Let me but lift my finger. She seemed to raise it. The listener's eyes were always on his paper, and to let it fall with a rattle on the ledge before her as if the axe had dropped. The citizeness is superb, croaked the juryman. She is an angel, said the vengeance and embraced her. As to thee, pursued Madame implacably, addressing her husband, if it depended on thee, which happily it does not, thou wouldst rescue this man even now. No! protested Defarge. Not if to lift this glass would do it. But I would leave the matter there. I say stop there. See you then, Jacques, said Madame Defarge wrathfully. And see you too, my little vengeance. See you both. Listen. For other crimes as tyrants and oppressors, I have this race a long time on my register, doomed to destruction and extermination. Ask my husband, is that so? It is so, assented Defarge, without being asked. In the beginning of the great days, when the Bastille falls, he finds this paper of today and he brings it home. And in the middle of the night, when this place is clear and shut, we read it, here on this spot by the light of this lamp. Ask him, is that so? It is so, assented Defarge. That night, I tell him, when the paper is read through and the lamp is burnt out and the day is gleaming in above those shutters and between those iron bars that I have now a secret to communicate. Ask him, is that so? It is so, assented Defarge again. I communicate to him that secret. I smite this bosom with these two hands as I smite it now and I tell him, Defarge, I was brought up among the fishermen of the seashore and that peasant family so injured by the two Evremont brothers as that Bastille paper describes is my family. Defarge, that sister of the mortally wounded boy upon the ground was my sister. That husband was my sister's husband. That unborn child was their child. That brother was my brother. That father was my father. Those dead are my dead, and that summons to answer for those things descends to me. Ask him, is that so? It is so, assented Defarge once more. Then tell wind and fire where to stop, returned Madame. But don't tell me. Both her hearers derived a horrible enjoyment from the deadly nature of her wrath. The listener could feel how white she was without seeing her, and both highly commended it. Defarge, a weak minority, interposed a few words for the memory of the compassionate wife of the Marquis, but only elicited from his own wife a repetition of her last reply. Tell the wind and fire where to stop, not me. Customers entered and the group was broken up. The English customer paid for what he had had, perplexedly counted as change, and asked as a stranger to be directed toward the National Palace. Madame Defarge took him to the door and put her arm on his in pointing out the road. 
The English customer was not without his reflections then that it might be a good deed to seize that arm, lift it, and strike under it sharp and deep. But he went his way and was soon swallowed up in the shadow of the prison wall. At the appointed hour, he emerged from it to present himself in Mr. Lorry's room again, where he found the old gentleman walking to and fro in restless anxiety. He said he had been with Lucy until just now, and had only left her for a few minutes to come and keep his appointment. Her father had not been seen since he quitted the banking house towards four o'clock. She had some faint hopes that his mediation might save Charles, but they were very slight. He had been more than five hours gone. Where could he be? Mr. Lorry waited until ten, but Dr. Manette not returning, and he being unwilling to leave Lucy any longer, it was arranged that he should go back to her and come to the banking house again at midnight. In the meanwhile... Carton would wait alone by the fire for the doctor. He waited and waited, and the clock struck twelve, but Dr. Manette did not come back. Mr. Lorry returned and found no tidings of him and brought none. Where could he be? They were discussing this question and were almost building up some weak structure of hope on his prolonged absence when they heard him on the stairs. The instant he entered the room, it was plain that all was lost. Whether he had really been to anyone, or whether he had been all that time traversing the streets, was never known. As he stood staring at them, they asked him no question, for his face told them everything. I cannot find it, said he, and I must have it. Where is it? His head and throat were bare and as he spoke with a helpless look straying all around, he took his coat off and let it drop on the floor. Where is my bench? I have been looking everywhere for my bench, and I can't find it. What have they done with my work? Time presses. I must finish those shoes. They looked at one another, and their hearts died within them. Come, come, said he, in a whimpering, miserable way. Let me get to work. Give me my work. Receiving no answer, he tore his hair and beat his feet upon the ground like a distracted child. Don't torture a poor forlorn wretch, he implored them with a dreadful cry, but give me my work. What is to become of us if those shoes are not done tonight? Lost, utterly lost. It was so clearly beyond hope to reason with him or try to restore him, that, as if by agreement, they each put a hand upon his shoulder and soothed him to sit down before the fire with a promise that he should have his work presently. He sank into the chair and brooded over the embers and shed tears, as if all that had happened since the garret time were a momentary fancy or a dream Mr. Lorry saw him shrink into the exact figure that Defarge had had in keeping. Affected and impressed with terror as they both were by this spectacle of ruin, it was not a time to yield to such emotions. His lonely daughter, bereft of her final hope and reliance, appealed to them both too strongly. Again, as if by agreement, they looked at one another with one meaning in their faces. 
Carton was the first to speak. The last chance is gone. It was not much. Yes, he had better be taken to her. But before you go, will you for a moment steadily attend to me? Don't ask me why I make the stipulations I am going to make and exact the promise I am going to exact. I have a reason, a good one. I do not doubt it, answered Mr. Lorry. Say on. The figure in the chair between them was all the time monotonously rocking itself to and fro and moaning. They spoke in such a tone as they would have used if they had been watching by a sick bed in the night. Carton stooped to pick up the coat, which lay almost entangling his feet. As he did so, a small case in which the doctor was accustomed to carry the lists of his day's duties fell lightly on the floor. Carton took it up, and there was a folded paper in it. We should look at this, he said. Mr. Lorry nodded his consent. He opened it and exclaimed, Thank God! What is it? asked Mr. Lorry eagerly. A moment. Let me speak of it in its place. First, he put his hand in his coat and took another paper from it. That is the certificate which enables me to pass out of this city. Look at it. You see? Sidney Carton, an Englishman. Mr. Lorry held it open in his hand, gazing in his earnest face. Keep it for me until tomorrow. I shall see him tomorrow, you remember, and I had better not take it into the prison. Why not? I don't know. I prefer not to do so. Now, take this paper that Dr. Manette has carried about him. It is a similar certificate enabling him and his daughter and her child at any time to pass the barrier and the frontier, you see? Yes. Perhaps he obtained it as his last and utmost precaution against evil yesterday. When is it dated? Oh, but no matter. Don't stay to look. Put it up carefully with mine and your own. Now observe. I never doubted, until within this hour or two, that he had, or could have, such a paper. It is good until recalled, but it may be soon recalled, and I have reason to think will be. They are not in danger. They are in great danger. They are in danger of denunciation by Madame Defarge. I know it from her own lips. I have overheard words of that woman's tonight which have presented their danger to me in strong colors. I have lost no time, and since then I have seen the spy. He confirms me. He knows that a wood sawyer living by the prison wall is under the control of the Defarges and has been rehearsed by Madame Defarge as to his having seen her. He never mentioned Lucy's name. Making signs and signals to prisoners. It is easy to foresee that the pretense will be the common one, a prison plot, and that it will involve her life, and perhaps her child's, and perhaps her father's, for both have been seen with her at that place. Don't look so horrified. You will save them all. Heaven grant I may, Carton, but how? I am going to tell you how. It will depend on you, and it could depend on no better man. This new denunciation will certainly not take place until after tomorrow, probably not until two or three days afterwards, more probably a week afterwards. You know it is a capital crime to mourn for or sympathize with a victim of the guillotine. 
she and her father would unquestionably be guilty of this crime, and this woman, the inveteracy of whose pursuit cannot be described, would wait to add that strength to her case and make herself doubly sure. You follow me? So attentively and with so much confidence in what you say that for a moment I lose sight, touching the back of the doctor's chair, even of this distress. You have money and can buy the means by traveling to the seacoast as quickly as the journey can be made. Your preparations have been completed for some days to return to England. Early tomorrow, have your horses ready so that they may be in starting trim at two o'clock in the afternoon. It shall be done. His manner was so fervent and inspiring that Mr. Lorry caught the flame and was as quick as youth. You are a noble heart. Did I say we could depend upon no better man? Tell her, tonight, what you know of her danger as involving her child and her father. Dwell upon that, for she would lay her own fair head beside her husband's cheerfully. He faltered for an instant, then went on as before. For the sake of her child and her father, press upon her the necessity of leaving Paris with them and you at that hour. Tell her that it was her husband's last arrangement. Tell her that more depends upon it than she dare believe or hope. You think that her father, even in this sad state, will submit himself to her, do you not? I am sure of it. I thought so. Quietly and steadily have all these arrangements made in the courtyard here, even to the taking of your own seat in the carriage. The moment I come to you, take me in and drive away. I understand that I wait for you under all circumstances. You have my certificate in your hand with the rest you know and will reserve my place. Wait for nothing but to have my place occupied, and then for England. Why then, said Mr. Lorry, grasping his eager but so firm and steady hand, it does not all depend on one old man, but I shall have a young and ardent man at my side. By the help of heaven you shall. Promise me solemnly that nothing will influence you to alter the course on which we now stand pledged to one another. Nothing, Carton. Remember these words tomorrow. Change the course or delay in it for any reason and no life can possibly be saved, and many lives must inevitably be sacrificed. I will remember them. I hope to do my part faithfully, and I hope to do mine. Now, goodbye. Though he said it with a grave smile of earnestness, and though he even put the old man's hand to his lips, he did not part from him then. He helped him so far to arouse the rocking figure before the dying embers as to get a cloak and hat put upon it and to tempt it forth to find where the bench and work were hidden that it still moaningly besought to have. He walked on the other side of it and protected it to the courtyard of the house where the afflicted heart, so happy in the memorable time when he had revealed his own desolate heart to it, outwatched the awful night. He entered the courtyard and remained there for a few moments alone, looking up at the light in the window of her room. Before he went away, he breathed a blessing towards it and a farewell.